see you. I have a feeling um, the Holy Spirit was probably ministering to some of you through that last song, and that resonates in your heart, the depression, the um, waiting for a breakthrough, but you just can't see it, and allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you through that. That is the path of a Christian on many occasions, is that darkness, and let me encourage you, if that's you, that you hold on, and you continue to cry out to the Lord for help, and He will show Himself to be strong on your behalf. He is a, a keeping God, and His grace will, will keep you. So if you are in the depths of depression, continue to cry out to Him. Cry out to your friends um, sitting beside you or in your life group, whatever it is, and trust that the Lord will meet you, and you'll look back and say, man, I never saw that breakthrough coming, but it came. And uh, he'll be faithful to you. Amen. Uh, If you have a Bible, please turn to the book of Acts chapter 1. I'm sorry, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, I started preaching through the book of Acts uh, a couple weeks ago. We're now in Acts chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 13 in just a minute here. Acts chapter 2. Starting in verse 1, let's pray before we start here. Well, Father, we thank you for your grace poured out to us in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And everyone who is now clinging to Christ in faith, you will keep him or her. You will preserve us. You will watch over us. You will not ultimately allow us to perish You will be with us, and we thank you, Father, for it, that you are an ever-present help in our times of trouble, that the afflicted can cry out to you, and the Scriptures say that you hear the cry of the afflicted. And we thank you, Father, this is the type of God you are, that you are a keeping God in and through Christ Jesus. And Father, we know one of the ways you keep us, one of the ways you encourage and strengthen us is through your Word. The combination of your spirit and your word is like dynamite in our souls, a bomb to our souls at, at times. And, and we would just ask, Father, as we open your word now, that you would send your spirit to illumine our hearts, that we might see great things in your word, that we might see Christ in your word, who is ultimately the end of everything in the scriptures. So help us today, we pray, Father. And we thank you for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I wonder if you've ever seen a movie that starts in black and white. You have all these different hues of gray. But at some point in the movie, it suddenly shifts into color. There's lots of movies that have done it. The Wizard of Oz was one of the first to do it. Wizard of Oz actually starts in sepia. Uh, Dorothy in Kansas, so it makes sense. It would be in this uh, brownish sepia uh, toned color. Uh, but Dorothy then after riding out this tornado in a cabin with Toto, her dog, she slowly opens the back door into this world of color 
called Oz. It's just kind of this dramatic shift from brown to these brilliant reds and blues and and greens. And this passage that we're going to read right here, well, this passage really marks the transition point in human history when everything suddenly shifted from a sort of black and white existence to a vibrant Color, one of the most significant events in human history here in this passage. And what is it? Well, we read here about the coming of the Holy Spirit. The, the monumental moment in history when the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, came to earth in a new and powerful way for good. Everything in history at this point sort of shifting from black and white to brilliant reds and blues and and greens. Just to catch you up to speed with where we are here, 50 days before the events here in this passage, Jesus was crucified and raised again uh, to pay the penalty for our sins, which means that you can now be forgiven. Simply turn to Christ, trust in Christ, follow Christ in faith, and you are forgiven because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross 50 days before Acts chapter 2. And after his resurrection, Jesus then spent the next 40 days with his original apostles and other disciples, his, his followers. He, he was appearing to them over those 40 days to prove that he was really risen. He was, he was teaching them. And in Acts 1, then just before this, Jesus ascended back to heaven. But just before he did, he told his original apostles to go back to Jerusalem and wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus said he would send to them after his ascension. So the apostles did. They returned to Jerusalem. They gathered in an upper room there. Some 120 disciples in all, Acts 1 said, praying and waiting. And this is now 10 days after they returned to Jerusalem. And just as Jesus promised, the Holy Spirit Spirit now comes. Let's go ahead and read it. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Luke is writing here, and Luke says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided Tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues 
the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. Amen. We see three things there uh, concerning the arrival of the Holy Spirit that we'll look at here today. Uh, First, the setting uh, Luke gives us. Second, the coming of the Spirit itself. And number three, the reaction uh, that followed the coming of the Spirit. The first thing we see here is the setting. Luke says there in verse 1 that when the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Probably all 120 disciples that were in Acts 1, men and women, all in one place, Luke says, probably in the same upper room that they've been in for the last 10 days, praying and waiting for the Holy Spirit. Maybe also the same room in in which they celebrated the Last Supper with Jesus. And Pentecost has now come. Now, Pentecost was one of three uh, yearly festivals when Jews would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate this big feast. And Pentecost was the best attended of those three yearly festivals because it occurred in June uh, when there were good travel conditions. Uh, Not always guaranteed in Minnesota that you're going to have uh, good travel conditions in June. You might get another 15 inches. Uh, But here in, in Israel in June, good travel condition, Pentecost, the best attended festival of the year, a very timely time for God to pour out His Holy Spirit. The word Pentecost, in in Greek means 50th. And and the festival was called Pentecost because it occurred 50 days after Passover. So just catch the timeline. Jesus was crucified at Passover. This is now 50 days later at the festival of Pentecost, which was also called the Feast of Weeks. And Pentecost was a celebration of of the annual harvest. It took place at harvest time. It was the festivals when the, the festival when the Jews would thank God for uh, their harvest. Very significant that the Holy Spirit would be poured out at Pentecost because we will see a massive harvest right here in this chapter. And not just a harvest of grain, but a harvest of souls. We'll read later in this chapter that on this day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is poured out, 3,000 new disciples begin to follow Christ. A massive harvest of souls when the Spirit comes. John Chrysostom, who lived in the 300s AD, he said this. He said, the time was come to put in the sickle. For here, as the sickle, keen-edged, came the Spirit down. And the Spirit here reaped a great harvest of souls. So that's a very simple setting. Lots of disciples together, upper room at the Feast of Pentecost. And the second thing here, the actual coming or the the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Uh, this, This very sudden, very dramatic, extraordinary 
event, a very sensory event for, for these disciples here in this upper room, influencing both their sight and their sound. Uh, you've, you've maybe heard of the band Earth, Wind, and Fire. Well, these disciples got two of the three. They get the wind and the fire here. If you look at verse 2, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Just, just, just imagine it. <laughs> In this room, this, this upper room, the sound of a mighty rushing wind that filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rusted on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This sound here, like a mighty rushing wind. And the Greek word for mighty there could, could be uh, translated as forcible or violent. The sound of a violent rushing wind. Uh, uh, Luke doesn't say here that there was a violent wind, uh, all their clothes whipping and stuff. He doesn't say that there was a wind here. It was a sound like a mighty rushing wind filled the house. Think of the sound of a tornado, maybe, if you've ever been close to one. Uh, when I was in seminary in Mississippi, uh, we barely escaped a tornado. Uh, one of the reasons I moved away from Mississippi, and then our first month here, a tornado came through Minnesota, which made me want to run north to Canada. Uh, but, but man, down in Mississippi, I was in this local deli. Molly was back with the children at our townhome. I was in this local deli, windows all over the place in this deli. Tornadoes come, and the workers run us into the refrigerator area in the deli. The tornado passed right over us, destroyed the car lot uh, right next door, sounded like this massive freight train went right over our heads, the entire place just rattling. And these disciples now hear what probably sounded a bit like a tornado to them. And they see something here that looks like fire. Not a literal fire here. Luke says it, it was divided tongues as of fire, or it looked like fire. It's almost like Luke is having trouble explaining a little bit what happened here. Looked like fire. Uh, the Greek sentence there could be translated as tongues as of fire that appeared to them, then divided among them, and and rested, literally in the Greek, sat on each one of them. Uh, and you can maybe just picture something like a, a, a California wildfire here. The, the fire appears, there's the spark, and it just begins to divide, begins to spread from home to home to home. And this fire-like thing here in this room now dividing and spreading and coming to rest on all of the disciples here in fire in the Bible, it is, it is often a manifestation of the very presence of God himself. I mean, you can just go back and read through the book of Exodus. It is everywhere. Uh, God originally appeared to Moses in a flaming fire, a, a, a burning bush. Uh, the Jews were led by God out of Egypt uh, by a pillar of fire. Uh, Moses received 
the law on Mount Sinai and the fire of God's presence descended on Mount Sinai. All of these different manifestations of the presence of God looking like fire. And and this fire here was also a sign of God's presence. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, had just invaded this room. Had just invaded these disciples. Luke says there in verse 3 that this fire rested on them. And in verse 4 he says that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And I do want you to notice what Luke says here. He tries to make a point here. If you look again at verse 3. Luke says, "...and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit." So this right here happened most likely not just to the twelve apostles, but to 120 disciples in, in this room which is highly significant. Uh, Up to this point in history, the tangible presence of God on this earth, for the most part, had been very localized in one primary place, in, in the temple in Jerusalem. The old covenant presence of God on earth. But this now marks a a major transition in God's redemptive plan. Things have now shifted dramatically from old covenant to new, where, where now the presence of God would be found on earth, not just primarily in one localized place in the temple, but would now be spread out, distributed the flame of God's presence now burning on and in every follower of Christ permanently. Every believer now, the temple, the one true God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Man, this right here in many ways, this is the shift in human history from black and and white to, to vibrant color. The presence of God now indwelling for good. Every follower of Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit. The age or the era of the Holy Spirit had now begun. Which is amazing. Man, up to this point right here, up to this point in the Bible... The Holy Spirit had definitely been there. The Spirit was there at creation. Genesis 1, hovering over the waters when God created everything. The Spirit at times had also come on different people temporarily in the Old Testament books, empowering them for various tasks. You can read through the book of Judges and hear how the Spirit rushed upon Samson and enabled him to, to perform all these incredible feats of strength. In the Spirit at times, in the Old Testament books, the Bible says the Spirit had also filled people at times to help them in some way. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit filled Bezalel and helped him to, to build the tabernacle. So the Holy Spirit had definitely been there in the Bible up to this point. But up to this point in time, God's people had not yet experienced the fullness 
of, of his spirit. The spirit had not yet taken up permanent and powerful residence in all of God's people. But man, things have just now shifted from old to new covenant. The, the spirit now coming to earth in a new and, and powerful way. The, the fulfillment of lots of prophecies. Man, the Old Testament books, if you read through them, the first two-thirds of your Bible, you read through those books, there's so many prophecies where God said at some point in time He would pour out His Holy Spirit in a new and powerful way. One of the most famous Old Testament prophecies was in the book of Joel, a prophecy that Peter will talk about later in this chapter. And God had promised this back in Joel chapter 2, said this, God said, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh or on all of his people. Your sons and your daughters, God said, shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit And John the Baptist, when he came right before Jesus, uh, John prophesied about the same thing. Matthew 3.11, John said this. He said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me, namely Jesus, he is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you. He will immerse you in or with the Holy Spirit and fire And Jesus, when he arrived, he also prophesied or he promised that this would happen. He said right up in Acts 1-4, he said this to his apostles. He said, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And these disciples here have now been baptized with the Holy Spirit, immersed in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit now taking up residence within them permanently like never ever before in human history. And listen, this baptism with the Holy Spirit, this initial filling with the Spirit that we see with these disciples here, well, we would say that this now happens for all God's people Every single true believer at conversion. The second you truly begin to trust in and follow Christ in faith, the Bible says that you've now been baptized with, you've been immersed in, you've been initially filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, that all Christians have been baptized in one spirit, into one body. And all Christians, Paul says, have been made to drink of one spirit. The second you are truly united to Christ by faith, you've been born of the spirit. John chapter 3. Titus 3. You've been saved by the washing of regeneration or the renewal of the spirit. Romans 8. You have now received the spirit of adoption at the moment of your conversion. Baptized with or filled initially with God's spirit. God himself now permanently indwelling and empowering you for life and ministry. Now some Christians today 
really just since the 20th century, mainly Pentecostals, have argued that the baptism of the Spirit doesn't actually happen at conversion, but it's a secondary experience that happens after conversion, and they say that only some Christians will receive this baptism of the Spirit. And they will point to this text here and say, these disciples here were already Christians, converted much earlier, and they were now later baptized with the Spirit. And they'll argue then that the Holy Spirit baptism must be a secondary, subsequent experience to conversion. And they will say that only some Christians will receive it. That may be the way you were brought up. You may believe that way now. If you do, love you. So thankful you're here. You're welcome to be here. I personally believe there are serious problems with that line of thinking. The baptism of the Spirit might have happened like that for these disciples, a secondary subsequent experience to conversion, because... This was a particular time in history, the transition period from Old to New Covenant. These guys started following Christ. They were converted under the Old Covenant, under the old ways of the Holy Spirit, the way the Spirit operated in the past. But now, in the middle of their lives... They have now just transitioned into the new covenant. The ways that the Spirit operates now. For these disciples, the baptism or initial filling with the Spirit, it had to be secondary to conversion. But that does not mean that that's the norm for us today. You have to be careful with the book of Acts. The book of Acts, this is about a unique time in history. The transition period from old to new. Some of what we see in Acts, it is prescriptive for us. It tells us the way things should be for us. But other things in Acts are just descriptive. Just describing the way things were for them. And as you read through the book of Acts, you need to be careful to discern what is prescriptive for us and what is descriptive, just telling us what was for them. And how do you know the difference when you go through Acts? What was prescriptive for us and what's descriptive just of them? Well, well, theologians have said for some 2,000 years that you have to read Acts in light of the rest of the New Testament. And that's one of the principles of good biblical interpretation. You let Scripture interpret Scripture. And you read the book of Acts in light of the rest of the New Testament. If you find something in Acts that you also find prescribed in other New Testament books, well, that thing in Acts is prescriptive for us then. But if you find something in Acts that you don't find prescribed for us in the other New Testament books, then that thing is probably just descriptive, telling us what happened for these men here. Now, I know some people want to read through the book of Acts and they say, oh, no, no, no. It's all prescriptive. It should all happen for us. Oh, really? The next time you need an elder in your church, go grab the lots then and cast them this pair of dice because the Acts, the, 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 the disciples did it back Back in Acts chapter 1. But, but when they did it, didn't mean it was prescriptive for us. You never see in the rest of the New Testament anywhere where the God is telling us to cast lots to make a decision. That was done and over by the time the Holy
Holy Spirit came. So there are definitely things in Acts that are not prescriptive for us. They are descriptive, like casting lots. And that's the way it is with the baptism or initial filling with the Holy Spirit. It was a secondary, subsequent experience for these guys after conversion because they lived at a particular time in history. But nowhere else in the entire New Testament do we find that prescribed for us that we should look for some sort of secondary, subsequent baptism or filling with the Spirit that only some Christians receive. On the contrary, the New Testament indicates very strongly that every Christian today is baptized or initially filled with the Spirit at conversion. The Spirit taking up residence within you permanently empowering you now for life and ministry. Now, as a Christian who has been filled initially with the Spirit, the, the, the New Testament does indicate that you can be filled again and again, or you can be filled more with, with God's Spirit. We'll see that pattern with these disciples in the book of Acts. They're filled initially here with the Spirit, but then as they move through the book, they're filled again and again with the Spirit. And we find other New Testament support that indicates that this ongoing filling of the Spirit for Christians is prescriptive for us today. Paul says this to Christians in Ephesians 5.18. He says, be filled, Christians, with the Spirit. The Greek there could be translated as, be filled continually with the Spirit. Be filled in an ongoing manner, Christians, with the Spirit. So a conversion you're baptized with, you're immersed in the Spirit, filled initially with the Spirit, but you then can be filled again and again, be more filled with God's Spirit. Wayne Grudem says this, he says, an analogy might be a balloon, which can be full of air even though it has very little air in it. When more air is blown in, the balloon expands and in a sense it is more full. So it is with us. We can be filled with the Holy Spirit initially and at the same time be able to receive much more of the Holy Spirit as well. And the Holy Spirit here now, after baptizing, after filling these these disciples here with the Holy Spirit, well, the Spirit now manifests Himself in them in a very particular way if you look at verse 4 again and they were all filled with the holy spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the spirit gave them utterance and and it seems very clear here that what the holy spirit did right here with these original apostles is he empowered them to speak in other foreign, known languages. Luke says later in verses 6 and 8, he he says that, that each of the foreigners in Jerusalem at this time, they heard the disciples speaking in his own native language. The language of his or her birth. 
The Greek word Luke uses later, verses 6 and 8, is the word dialectos, which means dialect, speaking in the native dialects of other countries. So just picture it. <laughs> these, these original disciples here, just picture it. One of them is instantly speaking perfect Latin. <laughs> One of them's instantly speaking perfect Phrygian, <laughs> whatever that might sound like. One, one, one speaking Greek and on, on down the road. It, it would be like, like us here and all of a sudden, boom, and, and one person here is suddenly speaking French. And on the other side of the room, we have a German speaker, not me. And uh, on the, over here, we have Urdu. We have, we have Farsi uh, on down the line. The, 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 this chorus of voices suddenly calling out in, in foreign, known languages. Man, can't you imagine that? Oh my word, suddenly you're just speaking in this, this foreign language. Oh, how I prayed to be able to do this in some Spanish tests in high school. Oh, God, will you please empower me now to speak Spanish? And, and man, as my test scores would show, he did not <laughs> answer that prayer for his glory and my good, I'm sure. Uh, but listen, could the Holy Spirit do that today? Empower someone? <laughs> To speak in a different language. Absolutely. Absolutely God is sovereign. God is all powerful. Can do anything he wants. There are missionary stories where God did it. A missionary can suddenly speak in a foreign language. And, 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 and the people there in that country are converted. Through this miracle of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Listen. Man, if God, back in the Old Testament, if he can cause Balaam's donkey to speak, period, (laughs) then surely God uh, today could cause a human being to speak another language. God is sovereign, all-powerful, can do anything he pleases. He can absolutely do that. And please Hear this, the New Testament speaks about that type of thing in other places. Paul in 1 Corinthians, he talks about a Holy Spirit gift of tongues. Christians, at times, empowered by the Spirit to speak in other languages. Now, it is very possible that the gift of tongues in 1 Corinthians, it might be a little different than the tongues here. Not necessarily a foreign known language like Spanish, but some type of heavenly angelic language or, or dialect that requires interpretation, the Apostle Paul says. But the New Testament does give support for this idea of the Spirit empowering Christians at times, even today, to speak in other languages. Now, I do realize that some Christians today believe that the gift of tongues has ceased, that it's no longer active today. Cessationists, uh, that might be you, might be where you come from. Hey, love you, glad you're here. Uh, uh, you just need to know, though, that, that the official position of this church is not cessationist. The official position of this church is 
continuationists, that God is sovereign to do anything He wants. We believe that all the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians still continue today, as God wills, even the gift of tongues. Here's an official statement on the Holy Spirit from our elder affirmation of faith. Now, I've kind of summarized, cut some things out. We believe that the newness of this era is marked by the unprecedented mission of the Spirit to glorify the crucified and risen Christ. And this the Holy Spirit does. Here's one of the ways the Holy Spirit glorifies a crucified and risen Christ by, among other things, manifesting Himself in spiritual gifts, being sovereignly free to dispense as He wills all the gifts of 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10, for the upbuilding of the body of Christ and the confirmation of His Word. Now, now you, you, you don't uh, necessarily have to believe that to be part of this church. You, you, you can be a cessationist and, and be here at this church. We love you. I love my cessationist brothers and sisters, but I believe very strongly against cessationism. And we'll get into it here in just a little bit. In the coming months, I'm going to take a break from Acts, and I'm going to preach through 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, and we'll talk then about all the Holy Spirit gifts and what they might look like in our church family. So, that is the setting, uh, that is the coming itself of the Holy Spirit in this crazy sounding wind and crazy looking fire in this upper room. And the last thing here, very quickly, the reaction that follows. So just point out a couple things here if you look again at verse 5. Luke says, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem at this time of Pentecost, Jews... Devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? We can tell by the way they dress. We can tell by their accent. They're they're just a bunch of country bumpkins from Galilee. How are these people all now uh, um, lingual experts up here in, in front of us? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And man, you just kind of step back and look at what's going on here. The perfect time for God to pour out His Holy Spirit in Jerusalem. Because this place was packed with people from all kinds of countries. Tons of nations. People now here for Pentecost. Jews traveling from other countries. And Luke says down in verse 11, there were also proselytes here. So there were also Gentiles from other countries who had converted to to Judaism. This city is now packed with Jews. The best attended festival of the year. And God says, yeah, (laughs) now's the time. And it's like a bomb just went off in, in this city. Starting in, in this upper room, and, and what probably happened here is that these disciples in this upper room just baptized in the Holy Spirit. Ooh, they then spilled out into the city. 
And the people hear this commotion. Might have heard the wind. I don't know. There's the, a the sound of the wind or something. Or they just hear these disciples now, now calling out loudly in their own native tongues. And they come running, just packing the center of the city, most likely. Hearing their, their, their own foreign dialects, their birth languages. And what are they hearing? <laughs> Luke says in verse 11 that these foreigners now hear in their own birth languages the mighty works of God. Now, we don't know how many disciples here. It's very likely there was 120. All of them now, out in the streets of Jerusalem, proclaiming the gospel. Just, just talking in all these languages about what God just did through the death and resurrection of Jesus to save sinners like you and me. Proclaiming the gospel in all these languages. And, and these foreigners, man, they, they just can't believe that they're hearing the, oh, their own languages from, from Galileans. Luke here, he just piles up the, these, these words of shock. Verse 6, he says that the people are bewildered. Verse 7, they're amazed and astonished. Verse 12, they're amazed and perplexed. One of those in the Greek, the, the Greek word literally means you're out of your mind. The people are out of their minds. What, how am I hearing this in my own language? And the people here are divided. You look at verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. Some are curious, interested, very interested. Uh, we'll see in the next passage, 3,000 come to Christ while others just mock. They might have heard all these different languages. It sounded a bit like gibberish to them. And they just say they're drunk, mocking. And we'll find out next week it was 9 a.m. <laughs> they're drunk. They're filled with new or, or, or literally sweet wine. There actually might be a little irony here from Luke. Uh, these disciples, they weren't filled right here with alcoholic wine, uh, but they were now filled with new wine. <laughs> the wine of the new covenant, as Jesus refers to it in Matthew 9, the, the wine of the Holy Spirit. So that's the reaction. We'll see more next week, but the people now, they're just absolutely stunned. In the next passage that we'll see next Sunday, Peter, man, he takes this opportunity and he preaches. And 3,000 new disciples come to Christ. This massive harvest at Pentecost, God dropped the sickle, <laughs> the Holy Spirit, and reaped a huge harvest. So, the Holy Spirit has now come. And that man is major shift in, in human history from black and white to vivid vibrant brilliant color the inauguration of the new covenant age of the spirit here at pentecost and before we close here i want to take just a minute to talk about the meaning or the significance of of pentecost well, what is pentecost all about the, the coming of the Spirit, the meaning or significance. Let me mention just a couple of things. One, 
Some of you might have caught this. Pentecost is the reverse of Babel. Some of you may know the story, Genesis chapter 11. Fallen humanity was united in one language. And what did fallen humanity try to do? Well, they tried to work together to build a tower to heaven to sinfully exalt themselves up to heaven. And Genesis 11, it's actually rather humorous when you read it. Genesis chapter 11, these people are building their tower to heaven. And Genesis 11 says, God came down to look at their tower. They didn't make it very far. And what did God do when He saw what they were trying to do in one language, fallen humanity? He confused their languages. And Genesis chapter 11 says that at that point, the nations were dispersed over the face of the earth. But now, God here at Pentecost, and you are going to have to wait on that because I just massively lost my place. Such a humbling thing when that happens. Gives the Holy Spirit time to work. God now at Pentecost begins to reverse that Babel curse. The nations here, they are now brought back together. And for a brief moment in time, God removes the language barrier. And all the people now hear the mighty works of God. (laughs) A small foretaste of heaven where people from every language on this planet will then praise the mighty works of God in their own dialects, I would imagine. But all of that praise will be understood by everyone. No more language barrier in heaven. Pentecost is the reverse of Babel. Someone someone said, at Babel, earth proudly tried to ascend to heaven, but at Pentecost, heaven humbly descended to earth in the person of the Holy Spirit. And a second thing about Pentecost that's important to catch here, Pentecost here is about worldwide mission. One of the primary reasons why God poured out His Spirit here was for mission. Up in Acts 1.8, Jesus said this to His disciples. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The Spirit given out here was given for one of the reasons for, for, for mission. Do you realize up to this point in the Bible that when God's people wanted to proclaim the mighty works of God, they did it in only one language. In Hebrew and a little Aramaic later. A little Greek. But it was in those few languages. And God now with the giving of the Holy Spirit has just exploded this into many different languages. One of the reasons why we love Wycliffe translators, who Gary and Ellie Sigma will be with, because they are still on the task of translating the Word of God, the mighty works of God, into other languages that is prompted by the Holy Spirit. 
That is one of the primary reasons why the Spirit came. One of the primary reasons why the Holy Spirit now empowers and fills Christians today. It is for mission that we might be witnesses to all nations. That's not the only reason why the Holy Spirit came. No, 1 Corinthians says that the gifts of the Spirit are also for the building up of the body, for the church, but the gifts of the Spirit and all the fullness of the Spirit, it's also for mission to empower us to take the gospel to the nations. And that, I believe, is a very healthy corrective for many hyper-charismatic types today who seem content at times to just sit around, wall themselves off from the world, and enjoy the supposed gifts of the Holy Spirit. But listen, if your supposed gifts of the Holy Spirit, if those gifts don't come with some sort of thrust toward the world, pushing you out on mission, you should maybe question the source of your spiritual gifts. They may not be from the Holy Spirit, like you're convinced that they are. Pentecost is for worldwide mission. Number three, Pentecost is unique. And yet... It is also characteristic. Pentecost is unique. It's also characteristic. This Pentecost that we see here, it's unique, unrepeatable, a singular phenomenon in human history. There's only one day of Pentecost when the Spirit of God was poured out on the people of God for good, which means that it's not correct for people today to speak of having their own personal Pentecost. Now, we might have revivals today which seem a little Pentecost-like, which is fantastic. But this was a unique, unrepeatable moment in God's redemptive plan. This Pentecost was unique, and yet it is also characteristic. That which was initiated here at Pentecost, this new covenant ministry of the Spirit, this new fullness of the Spirit, is now characteristic of the entire new covenant age. From Pentecost to the second coming of Christ, this Pentecost is our Pentecost. Sam Storm says this, he says, Although the day of Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit could only happen once as a singular event in redemptive history, the effects or the aftermath or fruit of the Spirit's coming are experienced at all times throughout the course of church history. The types of things that the Spirit did on this day those types of things now characterize this entire new covenant age of the Spirit. Spirit, maybe not the exact same phenomena that happened here in the exact same magnitude, but the same type of fullness and power of the Spirit. The gifts of the Holy Spirit, the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Those things will characterize our entire New Covenant age. Sam Storm says this, he says, What the Spirit did on that day centuries ago is also designed by God to characterize the experience of God's people throughout the course of this age until Jesus comes back. That's one of the reasons we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit gifts here in a couple of months. The gifts still characterize the people of God on this earth. And the last thing here about Pentecost, just leave you with this. What does Pentecost mean? Here's what it means. Pentecost means presence. One of the most precious gifts that has come to believers today as a result of Pentecost, we now have the constant presence of God in our souls. 
Like no one in the, in the old covenant did in the, in, to the same degree and to the same permanence. If you are right now connected to Christ by faith, then you right now have the flame of God's Spirit flickering in your soul. And do you realize whose Spirit that is within you? That is the Spirit of Jesus Christ Himself. Galatians 4, 6, Paul says, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You have the very Spirit of Jesus within your heart right now. Please don't rush past that. It is so easy for Christians today to say, oh, Jesus lives in our hearts, and it means nothing. If you are now connected to Christ by faith, then Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, is with you, eternally, eternally with you. No matter what you are going through right now, no matter what difficulty or depression or trial or suffering, Jesus is with you. And when you pray, you don't have to pray to Jesus up there. He's with you in here. He's with you in your room when you pray. He's with you when you sleep at night. He's with you no matter what you do. Do you realize that as a Christian, even in your worst sin, Jesus does not leave you ever. He is still with you. He is still watching over you. He is protecting you. He's convicting you. He's leading you to repentance after the sin. He still loves you. Jesus is with you. He's with you. If you're here today and you you don't yet trust in Christ, well, listen, there's hope for you. Jesus says in Revelation 3, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens to me, I will come in and eat with him and him with me. So receive his spirit today. And listen, as Christians, those of you who are, you know the Christian life, a lot of it is just learning to recognize, to be conscious of His presence with you throughout the day. Brother Lawrence wrote a famous book, The Practice of the Presence of God. That's what Christianity is. It's learning to, to recognize the Spirit is with me. So can I encourage you as you go through your week, once or twice a day this week, will you just pause? Will you just pause and take a deep breath and just remind yourself That the eternal Son of God is with you in the person of the Holy Spirit. If you will do that, it will change your life in dramatic ways to recognize that He's with you. Father, we thank You for the gift of Your Spirit. You've been good to us, O Lord. We do pray, Father, for Your help in believing what Your Word says about Your Holy Spirit. Father, we just thank you for all the times we'll see now in the book of Acts the work of the Holy Spirit to glorify Christ and bring people to Christ, to, to, to empower the, the people of God. And I pray, Father, you give us faith to believe that the Holy Spirit is real, that the Holy Spirit is with us in Christ. And Father, I pray we would begin to desire to be filled more and more with with God, with your spirit. Father, put a hunger in our hearts to be filled to overflowing with the fullness of the spirit. Forgive us, O Lord, for the times we've quenched your Holy Spirit in our fear or in our desire to, to, to just cause things to operate according to our own minds. Forgive us, O Lord, 
Open our hearts to believe that you are right now with us, living and active in our souls, in our church, in the glorious person of the Holy Spirit. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.